not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au, 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. Don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. G'day, my name is Anthony Daniel and joining me as always is Matt Grantham. How are you, mate? Very good, Anthony. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Who are we speaking to today? Uh, Today, we're going to be speaking to Julius Tan, who's the founder of Electrify Asia, who are a blockchain-based energy platform based in Singapore, and he joins us on the line today. Hello, Julius. Hi, hi, everyone. Hi, Matt and Anthony. I think we should be renaming ourselves to the Energy Blockchain Podcast. (laughs) We've had quite a few of these recently. That's right. We're really delving right under the grid edge here, Julius. So we've had a few um, blockchain energy platform people on on the show lately. We'd like to just start these interviews, um, Julius. Just give us a little bit of background about yourself firstly and also Electrify Asia. What are the origins of it? Yeah, sure. My, my background is in engineering. I've been in the uh, energy sector um, since the start of my, my working career. So I started off as um, a researcher in a solar in a solar energy research institute in Singapore. Uh, Move on to um, the electricity retail business, where we um, we were in my previous company, Sunset. We were uh, retailing solar power to um, businesses in Singapore. Um, so a bit of background: why we started the company. We realized that there was a, a gap in the market whereby in a retail space, um, is it, there's no there's there's very little uh, price uh, efficiency in a uh, price discovery. So what this means is that consumers and retailers uh, don't have a central place to meet uh, to for consumers to explore multiple uh, energy packages from different retailers. Uh, neither do retailers have a, a certain portal or certain platform to list their their energy prices or energy packages. Um, so we started a business um, last year in March. Uh, we're the first marketplace for retail electricity in Singapore. Um, we we went on to uh, to to explore a few other solutions to in how we can uh, improve the efficiency of energy markets and how price can be more uh, efficiently and effectively discovered. Uh, we also uh, look quite deeply into operational costs in the whole energy uh, the power market. I realized that one of the biggest uh, cost factors is in uh, customer acquisition, customer retention, as well as um, contract management. So we found out, we, we realized and we slowly discovered that uh, blockchain solution on, uh, on uh, using smart contracts for electricity could be a, a good way to go. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. Jules, we'll, we'll get into some detail on that to sort of the retailing side of things. But um, before we go into that, can we just get a little bit of background? I mean, I'm sure this this is quite uh, popular with our audience at the moment. Just a little bit of background about your uh, you're a blockchain company, about your upcoming ICO, and just a little bit of background. You know, what sort of token you're using, the money you're looking to raise, and where you know where this fits into the sort of blockchain energy token economy. Yeah. So, uh, a, a brief background on the project we are. Uh, Bringing the marketplace, uh, creating a decentralized marketplace for retailers uh, and energy providers, as well as consumers to interact. Uh, we're also creating a, a peer-to-peer exchange uh, for distributed energy resources, uh, and dis- distributed generation uh, asset owners to sell the excess power to um, any other consumer within uh, a city-wide 
Power Grid. Uh, in terms of our ICO, we actually concluded our ICO uh, last week. We raised uh, 30 million. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And um, the token that we have issued is the, it's called the ELEC token. So it's ELEC. And based on Ethereum ERC20, what, what is it? Yes. Yep. It's based on the Ethereum. Um, yeah. It's an ERC20 token. Yeah, and so can you just sort of um, outline for us, uh, you know, just a brief bit about this uh, token economics um, ha- and how you see this uh, token having a, you know utility for an investor or an owner of that token? Yeah, certainly. So there are a couple of different use cases for the token. Uh, a lot of detail is actually in a, in a technical white paper, but um, just very briefly, the tokens will be used um, firstly as a, as transactional fees. So what happens is that. The energy providers they they provide they offer their energy packages on the platform. Consumers um, enter in the contracts with the retailers or the, the peer-to-peer sources, and we enact and we allow the transaction uh, through the blockchain platform. So for every transaction, we take a, a fee that's paid in elect token. Uh, there are a few other uses uses for the token. For example, um, whenever uh, a peer-to-peer um, source or, or owner wants to sell power on the platform to a consumer, they have to deposit a certain amount of tokens. Uh, this is to ensure that there's good behavior on the platform as well. So you're hoping that that sort of staking uh, is going to be able to create some sort of scarcity and that that's going to drive the value of the, the utility of the token? Yeah, that would drive the, the utility of the token and the usage and demand for the token. Okay. Um, and can we just get a snapshot, Julius, of sort of um, the countries you're in at the moment and sort of number of customers and maybe utilities you're partnering with? Where's the sort of um, – where do the fingerprints of, uh, of Electrify Asia sort of spread so far? Good question. So we are we – are, well, we are based in Singapore, so there's definitely uh, our home turf and we will definitely be operating uh, commercially over here. Uh, we are also talking to um, many parties in Japan as well as in Australia. Uh, all of them to serve uh, or rather to play a different role. Um, Singapore's population is about 5 million people in Singapore. In J- Japan, it's, um, it's a lot bigger. It's almost uh, 100, 120 million. In Australia, it's about 20 million. So we see these uh, overseas markets as um, very good opportunities to scale our platform and to uh, provide benefits to more users. And and in terms of the blockchain, uh I know enough about blockchain technology to get myself into trouble, Julius. But you know, as you as you roll this technology out, do you see the envisage the need for a lot of customization of this blockchain um, as it rolls out? You know, do you have geolocation in it? Uh, what's the sort of the roadmap for the, the blockchain itself? Yeah, because of uh, the nature of power power industries and um, and the nature of, of the entire energy space is um is. It's going to be the, the solution and the, the platform is going to be customized to each city and each country because everything is uh, many many things are different in each country. The regulations, the way power is settled, the way the wholesale market is settled, uh, metering, they're all different. So definitely, there's going to be customization. Um, there's going to be uh, geolocation. So depending on where, which part of um, of Australia you are, for example, the contracts, the the details, the pricing will be slightly different. So you'd just be looking to build a platform and then maybe modify it, you know, based on different jurisdictions rather than just having one platform that you then just roll out globally. Yep, that's right. Yep. Definitely have to do that. 
Yeah. Um, and so just as a sort of a sort of a transition here, Julius, we, you know, we'll, we'll mention some of the things that we've asked some of the other blockchain uh, companies that have been on the show, breaking this down into the sort of the value opportunities in generation versus network versus retail. Um, but can I just get an idea from you? The thing that, that really interests me about your white paper is, you know, we've had uh, groups like WePower have been on the show and they're very much there sort of on from the generation point of view. They've focused on, I'm going to call it a business to peer transaction, even though that business is maybe a fractional ownership of a wind farm. Power Ledger is very much a sort of peer-to-peer platform. Um, are you, uh, looking at your white paper, it looks like you kind of do both of those. Have I got that correct? Where do you sit on that spectrum of, of peer-to-peer versus sort of business-to-peer or centralized asset-to-peer? Well, I, I think, I think um, you're pretty much on the retail as well as the, the wholesale market level. Um, so by touching the retail as well as customers and, um, and by integrating features that would interact with uh, wholesale market prices and behavior, uh, we, we, we then enable peer-to-peer. So the peer-to-peer element of it will definitely address uh, energy prices, um, how we can generate, uh, how, how we can have a better liquidity, better um, uh, flow of information in, in terms of different kinds of energy sources and, uh, and as well as the demand for them. Um, and so we'll, we'll move on, Julius, and talk a bit about those some of those network opportunities there. But one of the big issues we've had with blockchain and the, the thing, the nut that people have sort of had trouble cracking is this idea around how you manage uh, the timing of trading on a, on a network. Um, but but the other big issue with networks is that the networks rep- represent a big cost for, for people in Australia. Um, how big a problem is the network cost as a percentage of your bill in the sort of jurisdictions you're operating in, like Singapore? Yeah, the network is definitely a, a pretty big component. Um, so in Singapore, it's approximately 25 to 30% of the, of the entire bill. So that's something that, uh, that could be addressed with uh, either uh, on-site generation as well as uh, microgrid solutions. Or privatized grid solutions. So with um, with our platform, we will, we will actually enable uh, customers to yeah to, to install solar panels on their on their premises, and uh, they are also able to export and sell the excess power to someone else, so that we can fully maximize the their, their rooftop space, for example. And that will bring down the overall cost of uh, they basically they have they they they, they um, only need to, to import uh, a lower amount of energy. Because they have more self-consumption, and that will help to reduce the amount of uh, fees they're paying for network cost. And and the changes that you are um, the, the the system you're looking to implement is that is that going to be uh, predicated on the liberalisation of the Singapore energy market that's happening later this year? Can you go into a bit more detail? I, I assume the Australian energy market's a little more mature in that respect. Can you give us an idea of uh, what Singapore is planning to do and and how you're you're planning to uh, take advantage of that? Yeah, so so the boss market has been uh, um, progressively deregulated for the past seventeen years or so. Uh, they started off with the very big consumers, the the ones that consume perhaps uh, above one gigawatt hour per, a month, um, and they slowly um, um, deregulated in tranches. So the current threshold to to um, to buy from a private retailer is uh, is two thousand kilowatt hours a month. Uh, what happens at the end of this year is that the government is are uh, going to fully liberalize the market, which means that anyone, whether you use um, a very small amount of power or you are a big consumer, you have the choice to buy from a private retailer and provide a private uh, supplier of energy. So that's, uh, that's definitely very, very, very interesting for us. Um, our current business, we operate in the B2B space because the residential market is not open yet in Singapore. It only opens up in the latter half of this year. 
So yes, we're definitely very, very, very uh, excited to provide our solution, our platform to homeowners as well, beyond just uh, business consumers. And, and so, Julius, looking at the sort of the network solution, and, and you and I have discussed this um, with a sort of forum we were attending at the Blockchain uh, Centre a number of weeks ago now, um, this idea around the network solution or the network problems uh, that, that one of the things that blockchain can solve is this idea, especially in Australia, that we've got a hugely diverse grid and we're managing all sorts of voltage problems and long feeders. How does uh, – a, a, which which – lends itself to certain perhaps blockchain technologies, but how does something like your blockchain fit in, given that somewhere like Singapore is a very dense, I would guess, fairly stable grid, does that uh, change your approach in terms of how you look at addressing those sort of value streams? Yeah, definitely. Because in, so in Australia, as uh, we had discussed previously, the, the grid is um, broken down or rather split into many different um, different components and different parts uh, in different geographies, different parts of Australia. So the, the way that we can treat this is um, imagine that Australia is made up of multiple dense cities like Singapore. So uh, we develop a solution for Singapore and what we have to do is to customize it for each of these um, cities or um, towns within Australia. So it could be um, that you know within a town, uh, users can transact energy between themselves. Uh, but depending on the regulation as well as the setup of the the grid, uh, they could also transact power um, between two towns. It depends on how the market is connected physically and via the wholesale market. And, and how do you, yeah, and Julius, how do you uh, deal with the issues associated with uh, things like uh, voltage stabilization and the constraints where two individual customers, you know, in Singapore may want to trade with each other, but there is, uh, you know, maybe the voltage is too high, so the time when the two peers want to trade, the network won't let them. How do you see issues like that being resolved? And also, do you see Singapore just maybe as one really big microgrid, or do you ultimately see it being broken up into little microgrids as well? So I don't think we'll be splitting Singapore into multiple microgrids. Um, in terms of how power is going to be traded, so this this really, um, we really have addressed two different issues. One of them is uh, more of a physical uh, engineering issue, and the other would be uh, more of a financial issue. So um, also, again, again, it depends on the specific problem. Uh, in Singapore, for example, there isn't uh, that currently there isn't really an issue uh, between there isn't any there, there are any constraints uh, in terms of trading power between people uh, due to a, a certain network constraint. Uh, when in Australia, there could be, uh, and in such a case, I think what we have to do is to go to go on ground and uh, actually identify what what exactly is the problem. If um, the the constraint is due to you know. Um, the two networks being too far apart from each other, then uh, one the, the ideal solution or perhaps an optimized solution would be to create then two microgrid solutions for both sides of um, uh, both sides of the equation. And so, do you see in the example of Singapore, the you know uh, two neighbours uh, would pay the same to trade with each other as two people on the other end of the island? Do you see there being any uh, discrepancy in how networks are priced if two neighbours are trading as opposed to two people on the end of on the end of the island? Well, in, in Singapore is quite straightforward uh, because it's, it's one single grid, one single grid operator as well. So um, it doesn't the price at which the network price at which you have to pay. Doesn't, uh, it's not dependent on how far apart you are from your neighbor. So it could be on um, opposite sides of the island or it could be side by side. The, um, if you go through the national grid, uh, you pay the same amount. Uh, we are also in conversation with um, some parties in Singapore to, to discuss how we could um, perhaps start thinking about dynamic grid pricing. 
So which I, th- I think will be a lot more efficient. Uh, it will also um, create price behavior incentives for uh, more localized generation to reduce the overall load on, on the grid. You are listening to the Beyond Zero show when we are with uh, Julius Tan, who is the founder of Electrify Asia, a blockchain-based energy platform based in Singapore. We wanted to re- move on to the uh, the retail opportunity, uh, Julius, and uh, one thing that drew us to the white paper was the your, your emphasis on addre- addressing the retail opportunity and with your uh, e-wallet product. Can you go into a bit more detail on what that would entail? Yeah, so yeah, I'm developing an e-wallet on top of the Omisego's uh, e-wallet SDK. So essentially, what the e-wallet, the function of the e-wallet is to move uh, funds or tokens uh, between different parties. So the e-wallet will, will connect uh, very closely to the, to the energy smart contract that we will have. So what happens is, is this, for example, um, a retailer can, uh, can create a smart contract for electricity using our SDKs, uh, deploy the smart contract, and customer can um, sign on to this certain retailer's uh, energy package. So the smart contract, what it does is that it takes it pulls data from um, from a retailer or from uh, the, the metering company, and then it calculates how much uh, how much um, money the customer owes the retailer at the end of the month, for example. Then um, the smart contract will will execute payments from the consumer to the retailer or even to the peer to peer generation source. Julius, I um I look at your white paper and the thing that really struck me about it was that you know there's in places where you've got reasonably stable wholesale energy prices and maybe not a huge amount of opportunity to to tackle those network things. I mean, I think the retail opportunity for you guys is um is is I feel where you've really targeted your your technology. In terms of Australia, the retail margins maybe ten or twenty percent, and that obviously includes a profit along with a whole load of other compliance costs. How much of that cost do you think you can strip out by putting, you know, a lot of the stuff that you want to on the smart contract? So I, I think um, that the uh, to address the the percentage of profits uh, on each contract that would vary uh, quite quite a lot depending on the size of the customer. Also, of course, um, depending on commercial agreements with between a retailer and the customer, whether it's a commercial industrial customer or is it a residential customer. So the the cost of the percentage cost of maintaining a residential contract is uh, generally higher uh, due to the fact that you need your customer service teams and um, an operational finance teams to service uh, a smaller um, a smaller load, smaller consumer. Um, what I think the smart contract would would, uh, would help a lot is in reducing uh, compliance cost, uh, operational as well as finance cost. So what this means is that um, retailers and energy providers uh, no longer need to hire um, that many people in order to monitor contracts uh, as well as to execute contracts. Um, and uh, hopefully this, um, this cost savings will be passed on from the retailers and the energy generators to the consumers. So we expect perhaps about half of that, half of that margin um, uh, would be would, uh, would be saved by by the consumer as well as the retailer, and I think naturally uh, the retailer also needs to, to to make a profit. So that is a bit uh, more more uh, a bit harder to address. Would you see a lot of those savings being on the fixed cost side, so that perhaps the the more variable costs would actually only increase for the retailer if they if they are getting more customers? So would you see that your benefit actually stripping out a lot of those really high hurdles that that smaller retailers have to go through just to get in the business in the first place? Yep, yep, I think that's right. 
Um, and, and Julius, uh, looking at some of the risks, I mean, obviously blockchain, everyone gets excited about. There's a lot of um, opportunity there. How much of a problem uh, is, you know, counterparty risk in terms of non-payment to an energy retailer? And how do you, you know, uh, put a model together that sort of, you know, addresses the regulatory issue? Because in Australia, for example, um, you know, we've got rules around, you know, hardship payments if customers don't pay their bill. Now, obviously, if you're in the business area, not in the residential yet, maybe this is less of a problem. But you can't just simply cut people's power off, even if the smart contract perhaps says that you should. Uh, so how do you go about dealing with some of the regulatory problems incorporating that in, in, into a blockchain platform? Yeah, so, so in different markets, um, the way the regulatory environment changes um, quite differently. In, uh, in Australia versus in Singapore, for example, as, as you mentioned, there is um, certain uh, support provided by the government. Uh, in Singapore, there's a similar structure as well. So uh, what, what happens is that uh, smart contracts, as you mentioned, will uh, smart contracts are, are, are effective in, uh, in um, dealing with counterparty risk as well as uh, default risk. Because what happens is the retailer and the smart contract can actually uh, check if there are enough funds in the customer's wallet before supplying power and before uh, enacting the transaction between both parties. Um, in cases where uh, customers cannot afford to to uh, pay for their bills, I think the government subsidies and government support will come into to play. You mentioned in your white paper there, Julius, about you know the opportunity to create like a virtual energy retailer. Could you go into a little bit more uh, detail about how that works and also just mention some of the stuff to do with the contract, contracts for difference and how that synergy platform you know fits into the retail opportunity? So virtual retailers are is, is a pretty... Um, it's a pretty uh, new concept in Singapore. In some other markets, in the mature markets, uh, some people also call it white-labeled retailers. So the concept is, is as such. Um, we have uh, we build a platform for anyone to come in to be a retailer. So this addresses the, the, the issue of, um, of uh, barriers to entry to becoming a retailer. So in, in most of uh, these liberalized markets, in order to set up retailer business, you probably need um, quite a bit of funds to to do your hiring, to do your licensing, uh, software, and, and the works. Um, what we are trying to do is to reduce the, uh, lower the barriers uh, to entry as far as possible, um, such that anyone uh, anyone can set up a, a virtual retailer and um, perhaps sell power, provide power to people within their network. So this is uh, one of the issues, one of the projects we are working on uh, as part of the entire Electrify Marketplace. And hopefully this will bring uh, better price discovery, more liquidity, more um, more competition and more um, creativity into into the, into the energy market as well. Um, hopefully with this, we can also see a, a, a more diverse range of energy products that would suit um, different types of customers. Yeah, I'm, uh, interested, I'm interested in digging into that a little bit more because once you say, oh, we're going to white label this service and anybody can become an energy retailer – Right there, you say. Then, what are these guys actually doing? What What is their individual competitive advantage if they're all just using the same platform to provide a service? So, I'm really interested in that last thing you talked about. What kind of different energy retailers do you think could emerge if if they if the regulatory side of it is taken care of? What kind of new kind of market opportunities do you think can be taken advantage of? Quite a lot. So, for example, um, one example is um, if you. For example, you 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 um you're part of a certain community or a certain condominium, or uh, even a certain residential residential estate. Uh, what could happen is that um you can decide to to sign up as a virtual retailer. Uh, you can sell power to your neighbors within the estate, and th- this makes it um this makes it this addresses a bit of the issue of uh, trust and uh and 
also a bit of uh, the, the counterparty risk issue as well. Um, because if your community know uh, who you are and they trust you, um, they may be willing to buy power from you as opposed to buying from, say, uh, another energy retailer or a generator. So that, that uh, sort of bridges the gap between um, retailers as well as um, the end consumer by going through more channels. Um, other examples uh, could be, for example, if you if you um, if a certain business, let's say you run a uh, you run a food manufacturing plant uh, or central kitchen, and you know you decide that okay, um, why not? Uh, I I can also sell power besides selling food. I can also sell power to my network of restaurants. So this turns um, it creates more business opportunities for multiple parties, and also allows um, us to reach into to our customers in a, in a more effective, uh, more cost-effective way. And, and Julius, ad- addressing this issue, and this is something that some of the other sort of um, retailers and the blo- blo- blockchain technologies have sort of grappled with a bit, um, is this issue of how you manage to provide service at a time when, for example, the renewable a- energy asset that you own or as part of your virtual uh, retailing uh, opportunity isn't isn't available. Is it just going to be a matter of hedging? How how does how does your platform deal with the supplying of power when when maybe uh, you know that those renewable energy assets might not be available? Yeah, so I think you got it right. Uh, it's a matter of hedging. So what happens is that uh, uh, if we provide power uh, through our platform to say a consumer, uh, and a consumer decides to to buy uh, power from another peer to peer source, for example, a solar provider, uh, um, someone with a household a household with a solar panels on the rooftop. So both of them uh, trade power with each other. They buy um, The consumer buys power in the daytime. In the nighttime, there isn't power produced by the solar panels. So what happens is um, the power is then delivered, uh, provided uh, by the grid at wholesale prices. So uh, this is this is uh, pretty much a risk management and hedging issue, like, like you mentioned. So what we do is that um, if the, the um, power is, is uh, being supplied by... Uh, a retailer, the retailer takes on the burden of um, of risk management. And, and Julius, I'm just sort of I'm going to sort of draw, draw draw a line around this and move on to some of the hardware that you've got in a minute. But you know, from your point of view, do you see looking at those three things, the sort of retail and the network and the general, where do you see that you you know your your focus is? What what do you how do you weight those things internally in terms of what you're trying to target? I think I think we're really focusing on the retail as well as, well as the generation uh, generation specifically in terms of distributed, uh, probably smaller scale generation as opposed to your large solar pumps. Uh, but we can we can deal with uh, large assets as well. So that just means that uh, one large solar farm, for example, could, could uh, provide power to maybe uh, 100 uh, households. And uh, I think we'll move on now to the to the hardware component, which uh, immediately I think raised our eyebrows. I mean, the, the first question when everyone's anyone's got like a blockchain or software solution to anything, and they start mentioning hardware. I mean, the first question is why, and you you interact with a lot of smart meter kind of devices. So the question then becomes, why can't you update the firmware and interact with it, with, with hardware that's already in place? Well, what uh, what does this PowerPod give you that um, that regular hardware doesn't? Well, your current meters that are deployed at your house, uh, they don't communicate with the blockchain. So uh, what's needed uh, what, what's needed when you want to uh, sell and trade your excess power uh, with someone else across the city is some kind of IoT hardware or IoT gateway. 
So the function of this uh, really is to collect data in real time from uh, multiple devices. So it could be from your power meter, uh, or your solar inverter, uh, as well as perhaps some uh, weather sensors or environment sensors that, um, that you want to see on your dashboard or on your mobile phone. So the IoT Gateway uh, serves a few of these purposes. Uh, we, are, we are developing it, it right now to be um, extremely versatile in the sense that you just plug, uh, you just plug the PowerPoint to a couple of these uh, devices around your house um, and go, you log into our platform or uh, you can customize it and, and straight away view live data on your, on your mobile app, for example. Um, the live data is also important uh, in terms of um, settlement. So when, when um, a household or when, when a solar panel owner produces a certain amount of power um, between, within a certain time block, um, this time block has to be matched with the wholesale price uh, that's, that's being traded on, uh, within that city or within that country. Uh, so these this are all essential information in order for us to deal with the contract for difference settlement. And, and Julius, um, I just want to sort of get a little bit of an idea. So, um, first of all, uh, that's it's, it's just very interesting for me because I think that we've you know we've interviewed a number of people, and you're the first one to sort of really look at vertically integrating and and looking at how you can bring IoT on top of a specific uh, platform. There, so can I just delve a little bit deeper there? How much would this device cost? You know, is does we don't need an electrician to install it? Um, and and is it uh sort of the power pod? Is it a nice add-on for a customer, or is it absolutely necessary to participate as a customer? I think I read on your on your white paper that that if you're not exporting power, that you could just maybe get away with a with a um, smart meter. But if you want to be a seller of power, you need to have both of them. Definitely. So, so in, uh, I guess most liberalized markets, uh, most regulators will uh, require some kind of smart meter. If um, so, so you're right. Um, if you're an exporter of power, you will need the power port to track the export of power in real time. If you're a consumer, you can also use a power port if you want to track your consumption in real time, but that's uh, not, it's not uh, compulsory. You can still um, settle everything uh, without a power port. It's just that uh, you may get uh, delayed uh, data so you don't get to see your real time uh, consumption on, on your mobile app. And in terms of you know, where you're at with this, uh, with this rollout, Julius, I mean, one of the risks that jumps out at me is the the risk of of hardware rollout. I know in your white paper you mentioned 1.5 million customers. I know how long a smart meter rollout took in in Victoria. How long do you envisage you know that that rollout process taking in Singapore, and and maybe the risks associated with needing to roll out that many devices? Yeah. So I think uh, so. And anyway, just to address your previous question, which I I, uh, I missed out. Uh, the cost of the yes prototype stage is approximately 150 USD. Uh, but at mass production, um, uh, we are looking at somewhere below 80, uh, 80 USD. Um, in terms of uh, rolling out the hardware, that's uh, that's definitely definitely has to be a uh, well planned uh, and versioning as well as uh, maintenance of hardware. That's going to be important as well. So we are actually planning off that uh, at at the moment. But in terms of rolling out um, everything to to say more than a million customers, uh, that would definitely take some time. Uh, but well, that, that's one uh, one timeline. The other the other thing we have to address is also uh, how fast we can acquire customers. And uh, I think I, I'm not sure which one is going to be faster than, than the other. But uh, we'll deal with it with a, pro- a proper hardware management as well as centrally uh, managed um, server system to make sure that firmware is upgraded uh, regularly. Uh, drivers are all upgraded as well, uh, updated as well. So, for example, you could um, uh, use our PowerPoint, and perhaps today you're using. Um, uh, power meter from brand A. 
and tomorrow you wanted to connect, switch your meter to brand B. Uh, all of that will be, all of that support will be provided by us. Something makes me think, Matt, with a lot of these rollouts, it, it, to be in a dense city, it must make, help. It, it, yeah. it must help. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like Australia you're going right. from house to house or like all these business parks. I think in 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 Singapore, some of those rollouts might be a little little less complicated. But speaking of Australia, we wanted to end on that, uh, Julius. Uh, you, you have spent some time here. What what do you think is the specific opportunity in this country for for your technology? I think I think uh, the retail market is going to be a uh, a very interesting uh, product and solution for for the Australians. Uh, definitely, peer to peer is also going to be interesting uh, because the current uh, issue that a lot of Australians face, and this also a lot of feedback from a lot of feedback that we have gotten, is that uh, retailers, uh, a lot of retailers in Australia, they they um they they sell power to you at one price, and when they buy your excess solar power, they buy it at a, at a lower price. So what we're trying to address is also to to uh, allow uh, a fairer way for consumers to trade power, whether it's consumption or whether it's production and export. We want it to be a fair price. Um, and through our platform, we allow that price discovery. So um, the price is going to be set by actual demand, actual demand within the same country or within the same city. So if you're exporting power and someone else in the city is willing to buy it um, at the price that you put up, then uh, good for you, you are in business. Uh, if not, then you might have to lower the price or, or adjust your price. And I think in Australia, uh, as we discussed earlier, there are also a couple of other challenges that could be uh, addressed in, say, the north, the northern part of Queensland, um, in which we discuss a certain um, village, isolated village, uh, whereby power is extremely expensive because of uh, the distance from the generation source. So, what could um, well, one of the uses for our platform is also to allow. Uh, people to set up generation sources uh, on site or within the same uh, town, and that reduces the cost of um, the, it reduces the overall system cost of generation of, of uh, transmission and uh, losses through the power cable. And overall, it, it will definitely bring uh, benefits and financial um, incentives to consumers in in that uh, isolated town. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, it looks like we're going to have to leave it there, Julius. Um, thanks for joining us today and telling us all about it. And, Julius, do you want to just direct our listeners if they want to find out a bit more information? You've got a website you'd like to send them to? Yeah, um, so just head over to www.electrify.asia. So the, we have quite a lot of information there, uh, our white paper, our technical paper, they're all online as well. Uh, you can also check out, um, of course, uh, the podcast and uh, maybe you can go to our YouTube channel to, to find out, to watch some of the videos that we have done. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero show brought to you by the Climate Solutions Think Tank Beyond Zero Emissions. To find out more about what we do or get involved, follow us at bze.org.au. My name's Anthony Daniel. I'm Matt Grantham. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.